0: A remote, fantastical kingdom far from Europe's chancelleries of power. An ancient castle where secrets are walled up. An unpopular monarch on the eve of his coronation. A ruling class of plotters and would-be usurpers. And a gentleman adventurer on holiday. No, not Ruritania in the 19th century, but the United Kingdom in the 21st. new book, The Prisoner of Windsor, is a contemporary inversion of Anthony Hope's classic The Prisoner of Zender. In the original, an English gentleman on vacation is called upon to stand in for his lookalike, the King of Ruritania, at his coronation. Over a century later, a Ruritanian on vacation in London is called upon to return the favour and stand in For an Englishman in an absurd fantastical kingdom where Brexit never quite happened. Plots are afoot. The Prisoner of Windsor by Mark Stein, available in hardback and digital editions, or for a personally autographed copy, go to steinonline.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now.
1: along april 28th 2023 it is 3 p.m north american eastern time that's 4 p.m in the canadian maritimes half past four in newfoundland and beyond the americas 8 p.m in london and dublin 9 p.m in paris and berlin 10 p.m in Kiel. oh i'm back to square one Oh, well, 10 p.m. in Kiev and Moscow, now in the same time zone, if not the same country. 10.30 p.m. in Tehran, (laughs) for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. Midnight 45 in Kathmandu, for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. We have a little bit of a lyric reference to Kathmandu in one of today's musical selections. Uh, 3 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. Sorry about that. 5 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. Still very sorry. 7 a.m. in Auckland and a somewhat more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific. 400 years ago today, April 28th, 1623, Wilhelmus Beekman was born in Hasselt in the Dutch province of Overijssel at Christmas 1646. He sailed for what was then New Amsterdam and he prospered in the New World under both the Dutch and then the English. He became mayor of New York, governor of Delaware, governor of Pennsylvania. A lot of things named after him, Beekman Street and Beekman Place in Manhattan, the Beekman Arms upstate in New York in Rhinebeck where he died. The Beekman Arms is said to be the oldest continually operating in in the United States. I've stayed there quite a few times. Uh, unfortunately, before any of his political offices, he was treasurer of the Dutch West India Company, which had jurisdiction, sole jurisdiction, over Dutch participation in the slave trade. So make the most of Muneer Beekman, on his quadricentennial because by the time of his 402nd or 403rd birthday he's bound to have been cancelled and Beekman Place will be renamed Sam Brinton Place or Dylan Mulvaney Place or whatever. Had I known I was going to be one of those people with a catchphrase I think I would have stayed up after midnight and tried to come up with a better one but round about six years ago And somewhat late in life, I accidentally stumbled into a catchphrase. Here am I in 2017 on one of my first appearances on the show Tucker Carlson Tonight.
2: Wait, a fundamental language that corresponds with fundamental biology, all Um. of which it is now mandatory to deny. It's yeah. all, you, you sort of wonder, like, why does no one stand up and say that? I guess it's now illegal to. Well, Mark, well, thank you, you for you, that.
1: You get, it's like Spanish birth certificates, where because mummy and daddy are bad words now, it says progenitor one and progenitor two. Try it in a singles bar. Go, go into a singles bar, Tucker, and say, do you want to come back to my place and play progenitor one and progenitor two tonight? Uh, this time you can be progenitor one. <laughs>
2: Imagine being a high school biology teacher. You'd be suicidal by now. Thank you, Mark. Great to see you.
1: Thanks, Tucker. Good to see you. Looking well, too. Looking well, too? What the hell was I thinking? Uh, Well, the following week, I eschewed that and signed off with thanks a lot, Tucker. I didn't think anything of it. No big deal. Seemed the natural thing to say. But within a month, on 6th Avenue in Midtown Manhattan, in Burlington, Vermont... In Littleton, New Hampshire, random strangers would yell across the street at me, Thanks a lot, Tucker! And suddenly it was my, beam me up, Scotty. And I noticed on Twitter that whenever tweeters tweeted it, they always spelled it, thanks a lot, Tucker, T-U-C-K-A-H exclamation, as if somehow my accent was mangling the correct pronunciation of his name. If so... Tucker has been polite enough never to bring it up through all the years. So thanks a lot, Tucker. It stayed uh, for half a decade or so, for what I estimate to be some 250 TV shows. And in the fullness of time, the greatest of all showbiz impressionists, my fantastic compatriot, Rich Little, who was a mainstay of network TV through the 60s, 70s, 80s, Rich Little took up my undernourished catchphrase.
3: And then you've got um, Mark Stein. Yeah, Mark Stein. Thanks a lot, Tucker. <laughs> thanks a lot, Tucker. And then Tucker Carl- Carlson is, uh, hey, thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank- thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks a lot, Tucker. <laughs> oh,
3: thanks for coming on. Thanks-
1: <laughs> Uh, Rich Little, Rich Little, as he uh, notes in his act these days and as he did on that television show, his most famous impressions, uh, David Niven, Tony Curtis, Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon are of persons now deceased. Uh, And so, following my defenestration from GB News and Tucker's defenestration from Fox News, he and I fit right into the act now. We're as dead as all the others. Jimmy Stewart and James Mason, Tucker Carlson and Mark Stein. By the way, uh, I didn't mean it. Thanks a lot, Tucker. 2017 was the darkest time in my career. And had Tucker uh, not chosen to elevate me at a time when a lot of the big shots in conservative ink uh, and in the conservative media—and I don't want to mention any (laughs) names— I always say that. And then I do, don't I? Um, but I, uh, I owe him a lot for doing a big up yours to all those people who are trying to uh, ensure that I went away and didn't come back. Uh, so I, I meant it. Thanks a lot, Tucker. I owe him. An awful lot. Uh, Let's get to your questions. Matt from uh, upstate New York. By the way, I should say uh, you have to be a Mark Stein club member to ask a question, but you don't have to be a club member to listen. Any of the eight billion fine folk across this planet can listen. And we hope at least two billion of you are listening right now because uh, certainly, <laughs> judging from uh, this week's ratings, nobody is watching Fox at eight o'clock anymore, and nobody is watching GB News at eight o'clock anymore. I tell a lie actually. Eleventh uh, at eight thirty p.m. last night, eleven thousand eight hundred people of the sixty-seven million good souls across. Uh, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, 11,800 were watching GB News. Congratulations to the Lord President of His Majesty's Privy Council. Matt from Upstate New York asks, "Uh, This has been an incredibly discouraging week with Tucker disappearing from Fox. He was a reassuring part of my daily routine. I would listen to uh, his... Uh, show driving the next morning or possibly cooking dinner the following evening. I listened rather than watched his show generally. While I have faith he will be fine, land on his feet and will be in the arena again soon, it is probably a bit discouraging for him. Having gone through something somewhat similar, what do you think his next step is and what advice would you give him? I'm not sure Tucker needs any advice uh, from me. The There is a standard operating procedure from this, and some of us know it very well to one degree or another. Uh, and that is that it is not enough for them just to fire you. Um, there's all kinds of people far bigger than me who can tell you about this, uh, Megyn Kelly and, uh, and, and uh, others. Uh, you, you know, so your show, you find out, always the last to find out, that your show has ended and you think, oh, well, that's too bad. But, well, it was nice uh, while it lasted. I think I'll just go and have a cup of tea. And you're sitting in the tea room and you notice suddenly that half the people in the tea room are looking at you very oddly. And it turns out because there's something out there on the Internet uh, saying there are reports that you enjoy having sex with goats. And, uh, And that is the point. That is the standard operating procedure. It's not enough that your show on whatever network it is has ended. It's that they need to destroy you so totally so that you have no value uh, for anybody else uh, to uh, hire you. Um, in, my case, uh, example, <laughs> in, my, in my case, for example, I see. In my case, for example, at uh, CRTV so many years ago, uh, Carrie Katz, the cockwomble, I can call him a cockwomble because it's been adjudicated that he's a cockwomble. Uh, so that's uh, whatever they call it, res judicata. Uh, and um, he, what he did uh, he, was he got some of his more biddable hosts to devote their shows to attacking me. Uh, and so a fellow called Stephen Crowder devoted a show to attacking me. Or This is why all the Tucker stuff seems very familiar. Now, 99% of what you read about Tucker is bollocks. And it's bollocks for a reason, because as I said, the point is not just to let you go, but to destroy you so that you have no value if any competing network wants to hire you. That's the pattern of behaviour. For example, you notice that all the coverage of Tucker Carlson's case keeps going on, Uh, about a woman called Abby somebody, I can't remember her last name, uh, who's alleging a hostile work environment at Fox. Uh, She's claiming that uh, people made sexist remarks and they put up posters of Nancy Pelosi in a bikini. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm just saying... (laughs) That's a very specialized taste. I I can't find I if you I can't find it on Pornhub no matter how premium mega subscription you have. Uh, you can't you can't get that. It's a very specialized taste. Anyway, so this woman who's all now every story if you look at ABC, CBS, the New Yorker, the New York Times, every story about Tucker being bounced from Fox mentions this lady. She's never met him. He's never met her. He doesn't know her. They might conceivably have exchanged a couple of emails. She, she worked out of the New York office, and he never set foot in the New York office. And so this idea of using someone who's never so this whole thing. Oh, Tucker Carlson! Uh, geez, this sounds terrible, absolutely terrible. Uh, he's never met this woman, and yet somehow uh, he's Harvey Weinstein. If you read, if you read the New Yorker and the New York Times, and all that. Now, this was very familiar to me, because when Carrie Katz leaned on this fellow called what was he called again? Stephen Crowder. Uh, Stephen Crowder to do a show attacking me, Stephen Crowder interviewed someone who'd never met me about how awful I was. <laughs> Some guy he'd apparently applied for a job as a producer on the Mark Stein Show. I'm not you know, I'm I'm I don't handle that side of things. So he was interviewed by the people who do handle that kind of, that side of things, and they decided he wasn't quite their bag. And so he, he never worked on The Mark Stein Show. But nevertheless, he was still given half an hour of airtime on The Stephen Crowder Show, uh, to attack me. Someone who's never met me, never known me, never sent an email to me, never sent a, never, a, a text exchange. A fax has never passed between us. And, and that guy, Stephen Crowder, agreed to do that. I would never agree to do something like that, by the way. By, by the way, what's, what's, up, what's Stephen Crowder doing these days? <laughs> I, won't, I won't go into it, but he's having a bit of a bad day on uh, on, uh, on Twitter and social media and the like. Um, uh, couldn't happen to a nicer guy, actually. Um, but So that's the point. Their point is to destroy you wholeheartedly so you have no value to anybody else. And that's what's going on with Tucker right now. Uh, Tucker is being excoriated. Now, th- th- I'll tell you something else they do. And any, any of us who have been in this situation will be familiar uh, with it. Um, certainly Bill O'Reilly and Megan Kelly with it. It's like at a certain point, they start recording you when you're off the air. And the idea being is they'll get you to say something uh, that will then totally embarrass you when it's put up on YouTube or whatever. And some people have, you know, walked into the there's the Bill O'Reilly thing that everyone loves where he's suddenly going bonkers. It's something to do with sting, is it? And, and the police. And he starts swearing a lot. And uh, it's, it's hilarious. It's great fun. You should go and look at it. And then there's ones that aren't quite good fun. There's one of Laura Ingram berating her producers during a commercial break. Now, I never say anything generally when we're off air and in commercial break precisely because this idea that you never know who's recording you or whatever and uh, and so the idea the Id- and, and in fact when those bastards uh, carry cats the cockwomble he kept suing me um, when they did come up with a tape of my all the vile things I said when we were off air or whatever, uh, we actually posted it because it's so totally lame. I don't use any bad words. I come close, I do, f- which sounds like the start of a word beginning with F, but it could be uh, I suddenly see or as Cole Porter said, I suddenly see your f- fabulous face as uh as uh, as he wrote um and so when they did it it was so lame we put it up at the website it's still up there at the website they entered it as evidence i think cockwombling, carry cats in the second trial third trial whatever it was so we put it up there now they're doing that they're doing that to tucker right now and then they're not leaking the tape there's a lady actually she's one of the most uh, awful people on the planet. I'm not. Uh, that's a bit harsh. I mean, she's not as bad as Kim Jong Un, maybe, maybe three or four others. But a lady called Irina Briganti, uh, who runs the the the, the Fox Oppo operation, and she's leaking all this stuff to the usual pliable boobs at the New York Times, who are then, uh, and for example, the New York Times guy got a great story out of this. And he's been interviewed on MSNBC about it. He hasn't he hasn't seen the tape, but people in the know, as he puts it, have seen the tape. And on this tape, Tucker is alleged to be referring to a woman as "yummy," right? And so that has metastasized into Tucker Carlson refers to women inappropriately because he referred. To a woman as yummy. Now nobody has seen this tape, but Irina Briganti has just told the New York Times that this tape exists, and um, and uh, the New York Times has then uh, the New York Times reporters then gone on television and been interviewed about the existence of this tape in which Tucker calls a woman yummy, and then. Uh, The all the other papers have reported that uh, he's been on TV saying that there's a tape in which Tucker Carlson calls a woman yummy. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I've got love in my tummy. What a... uh, This is what it is. And by the way, this thing, I saw this as well. Once they saw, once they saw what we're in... Uh, Tucker Carlson's text, they knew he had to go. Because he apparently referred to Sidney Powell by the C word. (laughs) You know, Rupert Murdoch, and and it's Rupert who took the decision to fire Tucker Carlson. Rupert did not fire Tucker because he used the C word, because there are very few people anywhere on earth in the course of Rupert's 92 years who have ever used the C word as much as Rupert Murdoch. I, uh, he's, uh, I remember once, years ago, being in, uh, at, at some sort of uh, gala. Maybe it was an awards night in London. This is decades ago. Uh, and at one point, I chanced to find myself chatting to uh, Conrad, uh, Conrad Black, Viscount, uh, who ran the Telegraph group in those days, Uh, Viscount Rothermere, who ran the uh, uh, Daily Mail group from his uh, love nest with his Parisian mistress, so it was a light touch, Uh, he's the late father of the present Viscount Rothermere, who has made the Daily Mail a global brand. And then there was Rupert. The only one using naughty words there was Rupert Murdoch. So I don't think the idea that Rupert... Oh, I can't believe this. Trucker Carlson has referred to Sidney Powell by the sea. where well, he's going to have to... That's too... That's too bleeding far. <laughs> like, oh, rubbish. Everything about this thing is rubbish. Let's see what other... Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's my, that's my advice. Everything there, that's out there is intended to destroy you. And so I was lucky when they were trying to destroy me that Tucker was there to assist uh, me in resisting that. And I certainly hope... Uh, that those of us who think his show was important because it was the only show that talked about anything that mattered. It wasn't just the stupid, boring horse race. It wasn't just, you know, Mitch McConnell and all the other rubbish. He actually talked about the stuff. that Now, he mentioned this in his little, whatever it was, two-minute two Twitter clip the other night. And the only thing he got when he said all the debates are, are fake on TV and he said, uh, you know, in, in five years, we won't even be able to remember that we ha- had them. It's not like that. It's actually most of the stuff they're talking about in the quote unquote news won't matter in five weeks and that, is, and that is particularly true on the 24-7 hamster wheel. The stuff you're talking about won't matter in, it's not five years, it won't matter in five weeks. And that's why Tucker's show is a great loss. Uh, anyway, Dan Phillips from Telford. And don't worry, this isn't the Telford uh, that we've talked about with Samantha Smith on The Mark Stein Show in Shropshire, which is a hellhole of... Uh, child sex slavery. This is Telford, Tennessee, which I take it is a much nicer place. Could hardly fail to be. He says Dan Phillips. Says sometimes events like Tucker's forced departure are cataclysmic, in that they prompt a series of subsequent critical actions that never otherwise would have occurred. Or is this simply one more nail in the coffin of the First Amendment? How do you see it, Mark? Well. It's it's good that there is a First Amendment, uh, although this isn't really about it. This is about the broader culture of free speech. And a First Amendment doesn't really matter if every other force in society is agreeing to shrivel free speech, uh, which is what's going on in America right now. And it is certainly the case uh, that Tucker Carlson... In the six years this show ran, greatly expanded uh, the bounds of public discourse so that he talked about things. Um, you know, the thing that everyone goes on about, oh, he, uh, he lent credence to white replacement theory, which is a racist uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, The demographic transformation of the United States since the 1965 Immigration Act was passed uh, is striking. If you look at places like California uh the the uh demographic transformation of California which is really the beginning and end of why Republicans don't win there anymore that's something that would that if it had happened in Africa you would assume there'd been some Rwandan Civil war you can't change the demographic balance of society normally in that way so in that sense uh it's the the uh, conscious result of government policy. Tucker talked about that. Uh, nobody nobody else wanted to talk. In fact, he brought it, he actually used the, the word replacement when I was interviewing him on uh, the show that, uh, whatever it was, the 7 p.m. show just before he came on at 8. And uh, he got into a hell of a lot of trouble and people wanted him fired uh, for it. Um, but that's that's the point. The bounds in the conversation is boring, stupid, and irrelevant to anything that matters for most of the time. And with Tucker, it wasn't. And that's why it's it's interesting to me that Tucker was not only good for the eight o'clock slot, but he was good for the nine o'clock and the ten o'clock and the rest of the night. And what you notice in recent days. Is because his audience has basically fallen so far this week by two thirds. Uh, he, uh, he, I think a week ago, last whatever it is, last, Wednesday last week, he had three point three million viewers. Wednesday this week, he had one point three million. So he lost two thirds of the audience, and in the advertiser friendly, you know, people said, oh, well, he he's not friendly to advertisers. That's why he just says my pillow and other stuff like that. Uh, OK, uh, so we'll uh, we'll get an advertiser-friendly show. That means the so-called demographic, the whatever it is, 25 to 54-year-olds, that's what the advertiser's like, that's fallen by close to 70% because Tucker was one of the few uh, people, you know, people always say, oh, cable TV, it's just being, uh, cable news is just watched by old people. Uh, actually, no, Tucker had a big following amongst the young and uh, 70% of them have gone. And as I mentioned earlier, that means that Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram uh, and the rest of the schedule are also are also down. So it's bad. It's, but it's bad because uh, these are things that are not being talked about on television uh, anymore. Juan Otero says, I hope you, Tucker, and some like-minded folk could have a big platform to say whatever you want so the rest of us could benefit from it. I know that you don't like the idea of the millionaire sugar daddy, but I sure wish there was one that understood that 100 million people are tired of being disrespected at every turn. I wish I was the sugar daddy. The thing about it, Juan, is if you were the sugar daddy, you might, you might even start off by saying you just want to shower money on Tucker and me and a few other people to launch a brand new network or whatever. But in fact, you'd soon discover that you had other interests too. Now, I don't know why uh, Rupert decided he was done with Tucker, because it was it was Rupert's decision. The the, the stuff you're reading in the papers. Uh, that somehow uh, Rupert's son Lachlan and Suzanne Scott cooked it up. is complete drivel. uh, Suzanne Scott was basically just the messenger. Rupert made the decision, and then he said, Hey, Suzanne, call that uh, Tucker Carlson bastard up and tell him he's done. That's the only role Suzanne Scott played in it. She was the messenger girl. And uh, this whole... uh, no one knows why that. I mean, for example, Andrew Neal, who some of you will know about because he was the editor of the Sunday Times. And uh, then he was, you know, chairman of GB News. And I wound up getting his slot and everything and doing a lot of Andrew Neal jokes every night about him lying on the nude beach at Saint-Tropez, uh, which is where he spends most of the week. And uh, but uh, Andrew Neal was uh, as close as anyone to Rupert Murdoch. And he was, supposed to, he was involved in all the planning for Fox News. And he was supposed to be doing a big show on Fox News. And then one morning, uh, Rupert woke up and decided he was done with Andrew Neil. And it emerged, you know, some years later. There was something to do with uh, some deal he was doing in Malaysia. And the Malaysian prime minister, Dr. Mahathir, uh, wasn't happy with Andrew Neil and it's it could do, it could be something as apparently disconnected as that with uh Tucker but the thing is once Rupert Murdoch makes those decisions he never uh changes his mind and that's the trouble when you go down the sugar daddy path you know there was uh, uh Carrie Katz at CRTV got rich in the student loan business. He, he ran some student loan company and be, he became a billionaire. Only in America. You can't, you can't become a billionaire uh, lending money to students to do colonialism and transgender studies for six years in any other country on earth. And then what happened is that Obamacare screwed his student loan model. And uh, so he he sort of created a fake network in order to try and put... I didn't know any of this until it all came out in Discovery, you know. But basically, uh, he had other fish to fry. A sugar daddy, you know, when, when people think about sugar daddies, they're thinking of the guy's, you know, stage door johnnies. You're waiting there at the stage door for the show girl to come out at the end of the show. And you... Adore the showgirl. You're you're some fat old git, but you're incredibly rich, and you just want to shower your riches on the showgirl, uh, and that's uh, you know all well and good. But the trouble is, it's rarely that clean when you go with the sugar daddy model of uh, of, of conservative media. There's always other fish to fry that they don't uh, really know about. Uh, let's see, uh, let's see here. Oh, Walt Trimmer says, uh, "'Moving upstream from the Tucker situation, "'do you think Rupert Murdoch threw the Dominion case?' I know $800 million is a lot of money to you and me, but Alan Dershowitz said that Fox's case was pretty good and the actual damages would be hard to prove. If Fox spent $800 million defending the case and in the process showed that there was widespread fraud in the 2020 election and forced Dominion to explain some suspicious vote dumps, machines being connected to the internet and having software updates made during the vote counting, it would wreak havoc Havoc on the narrative that the January 6ers were insurrectionists. Is Rupert just an old man that would do anything to advance the New World Order rules based system, including dropping a ton of money that really means nothing to him? I'm not sure, Walt, I share Alan Dershowitz's uh, optimism on that case. I think they would almost certainly have lost at trial with a Delaware jury. Uh, Just just to back up a bit, um, because, you know, the Michael Mann case comes down to the same thing. When you're a public figure, you know, and you're uh, in defamation, you're trying to prove malice. And people think malice when when the Mann case started. (laughs) Everyone said, oh, they have no difficulty doing that. Everyone knows Stein's totally malicious. No, 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 no. That's not what malice means in defamation law. Malice means that you knew something was not true, but you went ahead and said it anyway. In my case, it would be that the hockey stick is a complete fraud. Now, uh, thats it's not the case that I say that in public and privately believe something else. I think it's a fraud in public and in private. The problem for Fox in the Dominion lawsuit is that Rupert, Rupert Murdoch uh, says in his uh, emails that he thinks it's all bunk and bollocks, and so do other key figures. And yet on air, they were lending credence to people like Rudy and to uh, uh, Sidney Powell. And so the danger there is that a jury would interpret that. As malice, in other words, Rupert's emails show that in private he thought it was all bunk, but he let Sean Hannity and Maria Bartiromo do one-hour shows on uh, it all night long, uh, and they would interpret that as fraud and basically transfer the entirety of Fox News's value to Dominion voting machines. Um, it would it would likely be reversed. At the appellate level, at the Supreme Court level. But if you're Rupert Murdoch, for example, and you were thinking of either selling the company or passing control onto your kids at some point, uh, the, the value of the company would be greatly diminished by a case you've already lost at trial. I don't know any of these things. All I would say is this. But the point to remember, particularly since the COVID began, is that Rupert Murdoch has spent the years since the COVID sitting in Oxfordshire. He used to be one of these guys, like all successful guys, he's flying around in his private plane all day between various outposts of his empire. He hasn't been doing that the last three years. He's been sitting in Oxfordshire. And his son, who's likely to inherit the group, is uh, sitting in his equally lovely residence in the Sydney suburbs. And so the idea that they're actually... uh, So it's worth saying they may have some interest here that is nothing whatsoever to do uh, with the United States at all. That's, That's how distant all this could be from anything that anybody's talking about. Um, Let's pause for a brief musical respite from the hell of the headlines. When I heard what Rupert had done to Tucker, a fragment of lyric wafted into my head and lodged there for most of this week. And normally when that happens, the next line comes up and then the next. And eventually we get to the title phrase and I figure out what song I'm thinking of. Uh, But for some reason that didn't happen. And so it drove me mad for days until uh, I eventually figured that it Kind of sort of sounded like Noel Card, and it uh, and it was uh, somewhat second order Noel Card. It has to be said. This is a song for officers in the Indian Army, because everyone knows that's a surefire way to get a big hit. Forget about boy meets girl and all that rubbish. If you want, really want to be, uh, you know, number one on the Billboard Hot One Hundred, you got to come up with the song. Uh, that's basically uh, uh, appeals to officers in the Indian army. So if you were ever stationed in Mayapur or Rawalpindi, you will be familiar with this situation. Uh, the young captain or lieutenant who seems to be the coming man and then gets moved on under somewhat mysterious circumstances. And you can't help wondering whatever happened to him as far as I'm aware this is the only song that references the name tucker and uh, notice from the rhyme when we eventually get to it uh, that Sanol pronounces it as I do. <laughs>
2: That we read about and may have been misled about In one respect has kept itself intact Though Pakasab traditions may have cracked and thinned The good old Indian arm is still a fact That famous monumental man, the officer and gentleman Still lives and breathes and functions from Bombay to Kathmandu At any moment one can glimpse, matured or embryonic blimps Vivaciously speculating as to what became of who. Though eastern sounds may fascinate your ear. When west meets west, you're always sure to hear. Whatever became of old Baggart? You know, I haven't seen him for a year. Is it true that young Briggs had to marry that faggot he met in the Vale of Kashmir? Have you heard any news of that chap in the blues? Was it Sotheby, Sedgwick, or Sims? He was stationed in Simla, or was it Bengal? But I know he got blind at a ball in Nepal and wrote several four-letter words on a wall. I wonder what happened to him. Whatever became of old Shelley, is it true that young Forbes was cashiered for riding quite nude on a pushbike through Delhi the day the new Viceroy appeared? Have you heard any word of that bloke in the third? Was it Prosser or Pycroft? Pim. They had him chucked out of a club in Bombay, for apart from his mess bills exceeding his pay, he took to pig sticking in quite the wrong way. I wonder what happened to him. One must admit that by and large upholders of the British Raj don't shine in conversation as a breed. Though Indian army officers can read a bit their verbal wit has rather run Their splendid insularity and roguish jocularity were echoing through India when Victoria was queen. In restaurants and dining cars, in messes, clubs and hotel bars, they try to maintain tradition in the way it's always been. The worlds may change and nations disappear. Above the shrieking chaos, You will hear. Whatever became of old Tucker? Have you heard any word of young Mills, who ruptured himself at the end of a chucker and had to be sent to the hills? They say that young Lees had a go of D.T., and his hopes of promotion are slim. According to Stubbs, who's a bit of a louse, the silly young blighter went out on a souse and took two old tops into government house. I wonder what happened to him. Whatever became of old Archie, I hear he departed this life after rounding up ten sacred cows in Karachi to welcome the governor's wife. Do you remember Monroe? In the P-A-V-O, he was tallish and mentally dim. That talk of heredity can't be quite true. He was dropped on his head by his ayah at two. I presume that by now he'll have reached GHQ. Yes, I'm sure that's what's happened to him.
1: No, Cad. I wonder what happened to him. And in particular, whatever became of old Tucker, which name he chose pretty much because it rhymed with chukka, uh, which is a period of play in polo. Uh, seven minutes, I think it is. Seven minutes, I think so. Uh, and it's also a fine Indian word, chukka. Uh, He could have rhymed it with not quite pucker, which is an even finer Indian word and might have been funnier. Our friend uh, Tim Rice, uh, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony winning lyricist, once said to me that he didn't think it quite pucker to rhyme proper nouns such as tucker or Paris or Vegemite. uh, And one sees what he means. Nevertheless, whatever became of old tucker? We are about to find out. I have a new book out. It's a satirical fancy called The Prisoner of Windsor. And (laughs) in The Prisoner of Zender, you may recall, an Englishman on holiday is called on to fill in for a king at his coronation in a weird, fantastical kingdom called Ruritania. In my contemporary inversion, a Ruritanian on holiday in London is called on to fill in for an Englishman in a weird, fantastical kingdom called called the UK. The book is in my hands. I'm signing them and we're shipping them as fast as we can. Likewise, the unsigned copies are being shipped out from Amazon and the digital versions such as Kindle and Nook and Kobo are being uh, electronically packaged up and sent to your e-doorstep. We're already on our second printing, which is nice. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A. Back to your questions in just 30 seconds. This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So, join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe. And we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. Yeah, it is 18 to 9 British summertime, a little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. Back to your questions. Michelle Dulac writes, Hi Mark, Andrew Sullivan proposes today that Tucker Carlson run for president, right along with RFK Jr. Sounds risky, but oddly entertaining. Uh, What think you? I've no idea uh, whether he can do that job. Don't forget, when you're looking at it in the American context, you're electing the chief executive of one of the biggest employers on the face of the earth. And you have to know enough people, you have to have enough people in your Rolodex to be able to fill all those posts. Now, Uh, You know how it usually works, whether you're talking about Bush or you're talking about Clinton. uh, They win and they've got a huge big political machine that's been built up over their years in quote unquote public service. And they put all those guys into the positions. If you're a non-politician who runs for office, as Donald J. Trump does, you win and then you go, oh, my God, what about wait, how many people are in the cabinet? That's like, uh, so do I know uh, enough people to fill the cabinet? And that's before I get to any of the deputy secretaries of, in, of the interior and assistant uh, secretaries of whatever and under secretaries of whatever. And that's, you know, that's the danger there um, that you're electing a uh, chief executive and it's nice to have some executive experience. That's why they always say all governors make better candidates than senators. The problem for that thesis though is that the people with all the experience have wrecked not just America but in fact uh, whole great swathes of the planet as well. Um, And so I don't buy the experience thing and I I dislike the permanent political class, and you know we've had RFK Jr. on the show, and I I I feel I feel sorry for people like RFK and Naomi Wolf, who are basically still people of the left, uh, whom the left has basically tried to turn into right wing maniacs like Stein and Carlson, Uh, and they're not, and they're not. But they were just being asked to sign on to something they could not sign on to. And uh, and I don't know whether Tucker is someone who, you know, like if RFK did have to have a vice presidential nominee, you know, Naomi Wolf would probably quite enjoy doing it. But uh, as to Tucker for president, I'm not. I'd like it. I'd like it. Don't know how likely it is, though. Keith Farrell says... Uh, The World Economic Forum are talking about accelerating their Agenda 2030. I don't blame them. Agenda 2030 sounded a long way away when they launched it just a couple of years ago now, but it's uh, only whatever it is, six and a half years away. Um, Is that because the cat is slowly coming out of the bag? Are we seeing the screws being tightened with yourself, Andrew Bridgen and Tucker Carlson? With an addition to the UK online harms bill intended to prevent discussion against the government narrative on vaccines, are we looking at empowering Ofcom as the arbiter of free speech across the whole media? That's actually rather important. Um, you know, Ofcom were able to get me bounced from television. They don't yet have the power to get me bounced from the Internet. But a, a quote, conservative government, so-called, in the United Kingdom is proposing to give them that power. And Ofcom has already hired uh, the guys who are going to be running that part of the operation for them. You know, um, I, I keep I say every few weeks on the show and have done for a couple of years now, that we try to talk about the things that matter. And a lot of the time, uh, the the people you hear on talk radio or cable news are not talking about the things that matter. Uh, Naomi Wolf made a rather interesting aside in her conversation with me a couple of days ago. I think it was Tuesday's Mark Stein show. And Naomi said that she'd concluded that The 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 vaccines across the entire Western world plan uh, were conceived of at a level above nation states, and uh, a lot of people don't think that take that seriously. They think that what matters is whether you're two points up in Iowa, uh, and whether that'll give you a big enough bounce. Uh, into new hampshire where you're two points behind americans are very quaint and think all that stuff matters but the fact is these guys jet off they all meet with each other this permanent floating crap game of international junketry uh where the guys who come out and pose for the group shot at the g7 i mean it's not actually seven at the g7 because they've got ursula von der leyen and uh a couple of other people, so it's usually 10 of them, but it's all the people behind the scenes all networking and coordinating. And again, you know, you just sit back and you think, isn't it odd that the entire Western world, every sovereign state with the exception of Sweden, basically responded to this COVID thing? In the same way, there were no real there were, you know, some minor regional variations between this North American country and that European country. But they're all on the periphery. And that tends to support Naomi's point, And it and it makes it look. And so it makes it, it further underlines the fact that all the things you talk about. What's the point of having arguments in domestic policy when on something like the covid Uh, Everybody agrees, whether you've got a left wing government uh, as in Canada or a right wing government as in Australia, they all do the same thing. Uh, So I certainly think um, that it's going to be very dangerous. And, And these guys, I'm the only guy who even does, you know, I find Klaus Schwab shtick is easy to do because he's like a Bond villain. He dresses like a Bond villain. He talks like a Bond villain. Uh, if you if you uh, said to him, here, just read this line for me, Herr Schwab. I'm afraid you're going rather tiresome, Mr. Bond. Uh, you'd cast him in the... I don't care. I mean, the next James Bond is going to be a you know, he's going to be a Muslim or he's going to be a gay or he's going to be a transgender or whatever. But, but, you know, if they stuck with the formula, Schwab would be the perfect Bond villain. But nobody, nobody on, if you just watch CBS network news or ABC network news or read the New York Times, the plans they're making for us never get a look in. And that's another reason to be uh, grateful for what Tucker's show did. Um, I'm I'm very I'm 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 so upset. I'm so upset that for an hour a night, some of these bigger picture things actually got talked about. And now then, and I've got nothing again. Brian Kilmeade. Is the sweetest guy. He's currently filling in for Tucker. He's a lovely guy. He's on air. He's they've got far more energy than me. He's on air for six hours a day. And they've now given him a seventh hour, but almost from the first minute of Monday's show, the overall message is we're back in the comforting parochialism of the Punch and Judy partisan ding dong, and that's it. I mean, for example, Tucker gave uh, our pal Ava Valadier broke her break on. Uh, U.S. TV. Just about the last show Tucker did was this big special, You Will Eat the Bugs? Again. He's the only guy who made uh, jokes on American TV about Klaus Schwab. And he had Ava as his reporter on the ground in the Netherlands talking about the Dutch farmers. That's not going to happen now that the control of the show is back in the fold. And that's rather sad. Tom Lewis says, stay healthy, Mark. <laughs> uh, any thoughts on if Chairman Xi is trying to form a deal between Zelensky and Putin for a ceasefire, thereby showing China as the new world power? And that's very interesting to me. Um, we all know that in the United States, both parties, the uniparty, so it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the Joe Biden left or the Lindsey Graham Wright, there's actually a Lindsey Graham joke, (laughs) I think it's right in chapter one of The Prisoner of Windsor. There's a Lindsey Graham joke in there, but the joke has a large element of truth in it, especially if you happen to be looking at Lindsey Graham uh, from the other side of what used to be the uh, Iron Curtain in middle Europa or a little ways east of there. But basically, the Uniparty wants the war to continue. So it would be hilarious if Chairman Xi, and I don't suppose he cares about this one way or the other, I don't suppose it's his biggest thing, but he sees the opportunity. If Chairman Xi were to broker a peace agreement between Zelensky and Putin and uh and and the kudos as you say he would be establishing himself as the new world power because basically uh washington has flung billions at zelensky nobody knows where it's gone you can't keep track of billions in ukraine i've said this before when i was in ukraine staying in a lovely hotel think it was seven euros a night including two meals, including breakfast and dinner. Uh, Can't really go wrong with that. so what you do with the billions and billions and billions that have been lavished in Ukraine, none of, no American taxpayer will ever know where all that went. And we know likewise with other nations, basically the British Army has given all its ammunition. This would be an excellent time. I don't know if anyone's uh, thinking about it, but if you had a sudden desire to invade the United Kingdom, because the British Army gave all its ammunition to Ukraine. So to uh, for she to actually step in and say, "You've had your fun, but it's over," would be a tremendous thing, and it would confirm what you hear uh, when you go about the world to allies and enemies alike that this is the post-American world, uh, and they just haven't officially proclaimed it yet. Um, uh, here's, a, here's a question from Perla it's a long question let me see if I can figure out what's going on here Perla says good evening Mark I have a question about what psychological processes or aspects of the human condition you think might explain what we have seen in the last few years where a majority seem to have swallowed the official narrative from the powers that be hook, line and sinker and were more than willing like they were participants in the Milgram and or the Stanford electric shock experiment to turn on their fellow human beings who showed some independent thought and didn't follow the party line to the letter. I continue to be astounded and deeply upset by people in general, politicians, scientists, medical professionals, friends and family who otherwise are able to be rational and high-functioning But when it came to COVID and the other frameworks uh, 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 that are being sold wholesale, didn't seem to be able to think a single independent thought, and they were even less inclined to act as humans with agency, but were more akin to sheep being led to slaughter, having lost the instincts necessary for survival. Do you think there is something inherent in us humans that a large majority have no aptitude for or interest in first principles or primary concerns? Are bread and circuses enough to fill their lives? And is it better to not expect more of those people and therefore not having to be upset by their apparent inabilities? Or is there some psychological mechanism by which they can be shaken awake? And become aware of some uncomfortable facts. And what does it require from all of us at these mad, bad times to make the most of what is life's inherent potential for change? All the best, says Perla, from a new club member in Sweden. And just to back up to what I was saying earlier when I was talking about the way everybody in the Western world Did the same thing except Sweden. And if you think back three years, what are we now? April. So we would have been in the first weeks of lockdown three years ago. And you'll be familiar with those uh, camera shots, uh, Fox News, for example, because they have cameras outside their building showing Sixth Avenue. So normally when they show it at the beginning of uh, Fox and Friends or whatever. You see 6th Avenue just as all the cars uh, are streaming up it uh, because the working day is about to start and all the commuter traffic's coming in. And then lockdown happened. And so the Fox News cameras, 6th Avenue, just showed a deserted street. And not just the uh, lanes for the motor vehicles, but the sidewalks as well were deserted. And that happened to be Midtown Manhattan. But you could have seen the same shot in any North American city, whether you're talking about Chicago or Toronto or Los Angeles or Vancouver. And you could have seen exactly the same shot as well in central London or Paris or Berlin or whatever. and the exception was if you happened to go on the internet and go, I because I missed some of my friends in Sweden, so you'd go and have a look at what was happening in Malmö or Gothenburg, and instead the street, the the, the pedestrianised streets were full of people. There'd be it Sweden, so there'd be. Pretty young girls on bicycles too, and they'd be sitting in the bars having beers, having nice Scandinavian beer and whooping it up, and community life was going on. What we are trying to deal with here is um, a psychosis, as Perla seems to be suggesting it is, that has been going on for a long time a century now. If you go back to the Spanish flu, uh, the the Spanish flu was basically the last spasm of the old world, the pre-Great War world. I often talk about the period from the revolutions of 1948 to August of 1914 when war broke out in Europe. I often talk about that as a period in human history. it was when the old the old world the pre-1914 world was at its height and that was destroyed in the great war not just literally in the crumblings of the habsburg empire and the romanov empire and the hohenzollerns in germany and the ottomans in ottoman empire in turkey but uh, but in the whole basis by which human life was governed. And there's a famous quote, I've never forgot it. I think I was a 12-year-old schoolboy when this was uh, first relayed to me. It's a line of A.J.P. Taylor. And it said in August 1914, the average British subject had no contact with the state whatsoever throughout the course of his life except for the village postmistress and the local constable. Uh, the, quote, the state, unquote, was, was barely a concept. And insofar as it was, it was a concept that did not really impinge on the average citizen that much. Uh, that world was destroyed in August 1914, and uh, the Spanish flu was the last kind of spasm in the way we reacted to it relatively sanely compared to what we did a century later with COVID. Uh, and in, in its place uh, came first certain basic assumptions just the, because of the slaughter on the Western Front, the rather generous provisions that, uh, that uh, all European nations made for... Uh, young widows and so forth. Uh, and then after the second World War, uh, the way uh, well, in it, it it expanded in between the war. For example, a lot of the problems that plague us today are because in America, because of the social systems that were introduced during the Roosevelt administration, the great alphabet alphabet soup of federal bureaucracy, um, and again, The assumption behind that is completely different from the assumptions of uh, functioning states in the 19th century. The whole idea there is that the state is there as your protector. It's there to protect you. And this is not something that was... This is a different way of looking at things. And then, obviously, after the war, it accelerated, you know, depending where you happen to be. But they weren't really so very different. The uh, institution of socialized health care in the United Kingdom, the generous uh, pension provisions made in France and Greece, the assumption... Uh, for example, that you uh, basically, before the First World War, you were a kid until about 13 or 14. Then you went to work on the farm. At a certain point, you ceased working on the farm and died shortly thereafter. Uh, What happened was we nibbled away at it at both ends, so that the assumption is that childhood is something that can be Uh, extended indefinitely. So you go to school until you're 18 and then maybe uh, you should have the right to go to college to do something entirely unscholarly and worthless till you're 25, 26, 27, whatever. Uh, Then, uh, as in France, you should retire at 58, 53, 47, whatever. And uh, it's it's economically unsustainable, but it is also over the last century, it has transformed along with certain other phenomena, such as the fact that most people uh, have shrunk their families now. So they don't think of themselves as being in the stream of a great procession of humanity, like the Catholic family, Monsieur Chrétien, the former Canadian prime minister, was born into. I think he's the See, the 11th of 12 children is very typical for Catholic families when Monsieur Chrétien was born in Quebec not so long ago. But you don't have that now. So instead, you have um, a completely, you, you basically uh, entirely dissolved fundamental senses of people's identity. That's one reason why we have all these new boutique identities where people think they're you know, they're transgender or they're intersexual or whatever. Because conventional identity, you know, first you're somebody's child. Then you're a father. Then you're a grandfather. Oh, I was thinking I'd like to be intersexual. Oh, we don't have time for that. You're dead. Uh, and because we, those most basic societal impulses have be, all been worn away over a century of increasing statism, in the spring of 2020, it then seems perfectly natural to shut down human life for a virus whose median age of death right now, wherever you are in the Western world, is about five or six years above life expectancy. And uh, I think I think that's the psychosis at work here. You know, it's not something inherent to the human condition, Perla. It's a perversion of the human condition that, uh, basically, a century of metastasizing statism has succeeded in inculcating in the general population. Boy, that is a <laughs> that is a big question, and uh, it deserves really a. Really, a book-sized, a book-length treatment, but uh, welcome to the club. Uh, I love Sweden, notwithstanding all its problems, and I regret, I think this is the longest period in which I have, because n- Malmo, uh, uh, my little walk from Malmo to Rosengard at sunset is my little test uh, for the Islamization of Europe, and I usually do it, I think it's every two years. Uh, And it's actually been four years now, so I need to get back doing it again. Alicia uh, says, we have a grocery chain war going with an unexpected link. Publix, that's a big supermarket chain in Florida and places. Uh, We don't have it here in northern New England, uh, to the best of my knowledge. At least we don't have it in northern New Hampshire. Uh, so I I don't think I've ever been in a Publix, but maybe I have somewhere or other. Uh, Publix's spot features Cab Calloway's fabulous Everybody Eats When They Come to My House as wary but adventurous eaters try new dishes. Harris Teeter runs a... And that also we don't have in... uh, new hampshire harris teeter runs a knockoff spot often right after the public's ad using get happy a song way too close in style to the cab calloway number to have much impact everybody eats was written by jan burns wife of jerry arlen get happy was written by jerry's brother harold arlen in a world full of amazing music was harris teeter's ad agency just lazy or did the client say, "I want one of those"? We should, uh, we, we, we next next week maybe we should uh, we should play those. I would say the difference is this: you know, get happy, which is uh, a song you know everybody has sung. Uh, Sinatra made a great record of it. Uh, Judy Garland uh, sang it in whatever movie that was. It's it's one of those you know it's a standard song that everybody has done instrumentally and vocally and so the idea of it turning up in an ad because is too predictable because uh, all clients want their product to make people happy so if you've got a product doesn't doesn't matter what it is uh, using Get Happy is a bit too obvious. What I like about Everybody Eats When They Come to My House is that's one of those songs that nobody has thought about for decades uh, except for uh, a few such as, you know, Cab Calloway fans. Um, but it's what's brilliant about it is it's a song you haven't heard for ages so you don't associate it for every with everybody else. So it's not like if Get Happy comes on in an ad, you're Thinking, oh, there's that Sinatra song, or oh, there's that Judy Garland song, and and so I, 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 it may well be that the second company is trying to do a knockoff of the first. But what's brilliant about the first, is that's not the song you suggest first time round. That's what's uh, brilliant uh, about it. Oh, we got a little uh, more pop culture thing. Michael Cavino says, "Hi Mark, Warner Brothers Studios turned hundred years old this month." My father's a huge Jimmy Cagney fan, so I grew up watching all of James Cagney's gangster classics, Public Enemy, White Heat, Roaring Twenties, Each Dawn I Die, and his song and dance films, Yankee Doodle, Footlight Parade, Footlight Parade, (laughs) these films remain my favourites of the classic Warner Brothers era, as well as The Adventures of Robin Hood, which I showed my young girls last year. What are your favourites from the studio, please? Take care of yourself. Thank you for all you do weekly. Well, you know, uh, Warner Brothers' back catalogue includes Casablanca, which is hard to argue with. I do love Footlight Parade because in it, Cagney sings uh, Shanghai Lil. And I love that song, Shanghai Lil. I love uh, the other Cagney film. What's it called? Uh Is it blonde crazy? The one with Joan Blondell, anything with Joan Blondell is worth watching. But it includes the scene where uh, he walks in on her in the bathroom. She's in the bath with the bubbles up all over the tub. And um, a year or two later, they brought in the code, so-called, and you couldn't show a scene like that. And um, I like I, I think uh, I'm, I'm sentimental about any studio savvy enough uh, that its back catalogue includes a Joan Blondell bathtub scene. But I love two kinds of I like the Cagney gangster films with all the rat-a-tat dialogue because Warner Brothers was great. They they re, Warner Brothers capitalized on the fact uh, that once you had sound pictures, what's the point of sound pictures? Well, they call them the talkies. Why do they call them the talkies? Because people talk in them. And so suddenly, instead of uh, the—and and it was sad and tragic for uh, silent film, which had become an art form in distinct uh, from the Broadway play— the dramatic stage play and is a tragedy for the silent film art form but the nobody capitalized on talking the way warner brothers did when they did the gangster pics with the rat it's almost like said so we've had to make silent pictures uh for whatever it is uh the first 10 years and so now we're going to make up for it by uh getting as many words in and that rat-a-tat-tat dialogue in those warner brothers gangster pictures is tremendous also they figured out what you could do is song and dance. All those early uh, Warner Brothers musicals, uh, Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty-four, Gold Diggers in nineteen thirty-five, Gold Diggers in nineteen thirty, whatever. I love, I love those. They are great. Thank you for coming up uh, with an, uh, <laughs> a non despairing note on which to end the show. We at least remember that we reached the heights. Of uh, Jimmy Cagney and uh, what was it? Was it Blonde Crazy? I'm gonna it's gonna be driving me nuts now for the rest of the day. Jimmy Cagney and any civilization that uh, can produce Jimmy Cagney and Joan Blondell has got something to be uh, proud of. A little bit of music to close. Um, the other thing about uh, they have uh, it's only heard instrumentally uh, in the film, but it's a great tune. When your lover has gone. That's in that picture too. A little bit of music to close. I said um, that that Noel Card lyric, I wonder what happened to him, is the only song I know to mention the name Tucker. But this is pretty close. It works its way to warning about being too tuckered. And evidently, um, Rupert decided this week that he was just too Tucker. And it popped into my uh, head because uh, Irina Briganti and her malevolent toads at Fox are busy leaking against Tucker, as we discussed earlier. They're leaking against him 24-7 to all these hacks eager for the dull thud of leaden pseudo-scoops. For example, uh, from, uh, I think this is from yesterday's New York Times, quote, Tucker Carlson was captured on video discussing if his post-menopausal fans will like how he looks on air and describing a woman as yummy. Oh, sorry, I accidentally fainted there, but that's right. Tucker described a woman as yummy. No broad wants to hear that kind of talk.
3: Make like a Mr. Milk Toast And you'll get shut out Make like a Mr. Meek And you'll get cut out Make like a little lamb And wham, you're shorn I tell you, chum, it's time to come blow your horn Make like the Mr. Mumbles And you're a zero Make like the Mr. Big They dig a hero You've got to sound your A The day you're born I tell you chum It's time to come blow your horn The taller the tree Sweeter the peach I'll give you the whole magilla In a one word speech Reach Make like the world's your pudding But like the brandy Even the mildest kiss Is a dan dan dandy There'll be no love in bloom some doomsday morn I tell you chum It's time to come Blow your horn In civilized jungles Females adore to come on in If you want to score, roar You can be either read to or be the reader You can be either led or be the leader Don't wait until you're told you're old and worn Take in some air and get your lips puckered Before you find you're simply too tuckered I'll tell you, chum, it's time to come blow your horn Blow your horn i tell you, chum, it's time to come blow your horn
1: Take in some air and get your lips puckered before you find you're simply too tuckered. Frank Sinatra sings music by Jimmy Van Heusen, words by Sammy Kahn, arranged and conducted by Nelson Riddle. In civilized jungles, the females adore the lions who come on swinging if you want to score raw. Uh, yeah, uh, Sammy Kahn wrote that and Jimmy Van Heusen lived it, but... Don't try that at home, boys and girls, not these days. That's it. I'm simply too tuckered. Stick with Stein Online this coming Coronation Week. If you seek a respite from the coverage, uh, do try my new book, The Prisoner of Windsor. You can get an autographed copy at the Stein Online bookstore or an unautographed one, which you may prefer, from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indigo in Canada. Uh, Stay safe, stay free, stay well.
2: Subland Q&A is a production of Markstein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.